0: I didn't ever know about the power of story until I physically and tangibly saw it in a room. If you can imagine me sitting in a junior, like an elementary school and I was on a small chair in a classroom with a, somebody telling a story where I saw how powerful it was because I saw how people got affected by it. And my brain said to me, oh my goodness, what happened? And then a split second after that, I wonder if I could do that. So that was the moment when I learned about
1: story. Welcome to Create New Futures thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you, and for your organization. This is a V event today I'm speaking with Mary Alice Arthur. Mary Alice is a story activist, working with stories in service of Positive Systemic Shift, where she helps focus collective intelligence on critical issues. She creates spaces where people can find and activate the stories that will take them into a flourishing future. An internationally recognized process host Mary Alice is teaching all over the world the art of hosting and helping organizations build capacity for people to bring their stories to life. A lifelong international nomad, Mary Alice has been gathering wisdom in the form of stories, mythologies, and teachings that weave their way into her life and work. Mary Alice, it's great to have you here. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation.
1: What did I miss in this setup that people should be aware of in terms of your areas of work and illustrious background? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Illustrious. (laughs) I've never thought about it. Like, Thank you for that word. I'm going to take it with me. Two things. Number one is that uh, story activism has these two parts, and that is, first of all, being very aware and awake to how stories work. They're out there shaping the way we see the world They shape what we believe is our agency, our ability to do something. They are setting the pathway for what we can do in the future. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a young guy in Leeds who said, okay, we we also have racial tensions like are happening in the States. Those are happening in the art community, and I really want to do something. And I said to him, what I've learned through people I've worked with who've been in the peace business, the peace building business, is that they really know how conflict escalates. They know how conflict can de-escalate. But what they don't know is how the narrative part underneath that works. So things stay the way they are because we hold on to our stories about them. And, you know, it sounds really simple of change your story, change the world, right? But actually, it's not that easy because all of our identity and who we are and what we believe our power is or isn't is bound up in our story. So it's equally true for people who are successful or people who see themselves as victims that their identity comes from story. So the first thing is, are you in a story you really want to live in? And is it a generative one? You know, we were speaking before as, as a parent, as a grandparent, your focus begins to shift to, oh my goodness, what kind of world am I creating for these kids who are coming behind us? It's a different storyline then you might've had as a younger person where you were like, okay, what's my success and how do I show up in this field and who am I? So how do stories work in us, around us, between us, through us, on us when we're not aware of it? Because you can be co-opted by stories too of your nationality or your racial background or any of those kind of things. And then the other part of it is the hosting piece. Once you find out what story you really want to be in, then how do you find the people who can help you get there and stay together with them for long enough to make wise action? So not just any action, but what is wise action? I've been percolating on that for a long time. What does wise action mean? What does the concept of stewarding something mean? So not the ownership of something, but looking after something in a way that you feel the calling to it. It's like you cannot not do it. That's a stewarding move. So these two together for me are story activism. And you said in international nomad, I call myself an intentional nomad. So somebody Ah. who is moving with intent between people and places and organizations where the call is for my gifts and my service. So I haven't been one of those people who, I went to Purdue University and there was back in the day, you were supposed to have your 10-year plan. If you went to Krannert Management School, you were supposed to have your 10-year plan of what you were supposed to do. I never had that 10-year plan. Because I've been in the school of life, and so life has directed me here or there or here or there, and I just my job really is to listen deeply and go, okay, what's the program for today, life, <laughs> not to have so much of my own. I want to go over there, so that's been an interesting, interesting journey.
1: So this is a wonderful executive summary of what we are about to unpack because you gave all all the themes that I'd like. Uh you covered all the themes that, that we would like to pick. So first of all, what's your definition of a story and how is it different to narrative because you used, are these two words mean one and the same thing, or are they different?
0: You can look through a lot of different books and find a lot of different definitions for these two things. I think we pretty much universally agree that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And view stories as a humanity because it's like life is flowing on as almost as if it were a rushing river and it might make no sense. So what we are attempting to do is take a snapshot, a little moment and go, okay, this has some sense and meaning. I can understand this bit. So we use stories as a way to hold on to our lived experience. So anybody that tells you that they don't believe in stories or they never tell stories is in fact, probably not a human being. Maybe they're a robot. I don't know. Because every human being tells stories. That's the way that we Explain what happened to us. There's always some meaning that comes with us. We are compelled to make meaning.
1: Maybe they tell lousy stories, or they (laughs) yeah,
0: yeah, or they, or you know, and if you're a British-based culture like New Zealand, Australia, and someone tells you, "Don't tell me stories," what they mean is, "Don't lie to me." So Mm. this word has been transmuted too. But if you ask me, what is a story? I'd say it's a bite-sized piece of meaning-making. Right. That's my definition of it.
1: So it is about the meaning-making, the sense-making function. Mm -hmm. in terms of how we understand ourselves in the evolving ecosystem we are part of and how we connect those different pieces of information. And inside this, what for you is the most enjoyable piece and enjoyable element in the gestalt of the totality of what you do?
0: People have, because I've been such a traveler in my life, often people have asked me, where do you feel most at home? And actually, I don't have a physical place for that where I feel at home is inside of circles when people are leaning into each other. Mm. You know, when people are telling stories and it gets riveting enough that everybody kind of leans forward and there's this look of intensity and there's suddenly there's this depth of listening in the room. That is where I feel at home and where my sweet spot is when I can really see people because in that leaning forward, you know, you could say in a, a kind of a blunt way that listening is love and action It's how we tell people that we care. Hey, I want to give you some of my undiluted attention for a moment. Mm -hmm. I want to honor who you are, listening for the spark of your brilliance. I'm looking to call you forth. And long ago, I remember doing a speech for a bunch of educational people, and I was thinking a lot about leadership at the time, and I thought to myself, that's one thing that people really want from leaders. They don't want 100% attention. But if you're going to be with me, give me your undivided attention for a moment so that I know that I matter. And in that moment, we can discover something together, usually. So I, in my groups, (laughs) talk a lot about the power of witnessing and the power of listening. So not only listening, but witnessing. And witness, you might even say withness, witnessing. You know, if I really am deciding to be with you, then we could discover something together. Even you, who've told the story so many times, might discover something you never knew, in the power of my listening. It's the ultimate leadership tool, frankly. I think stories and listening are the ultimate leadership tool that have, nobody knows about.
1: <laughs> yes. You're describing there not only listening level four, but listening, what I define as listening level five, mm-hmm. which is, so listening level one is when I multitask and I don't even listen. Listening yeah. level two is when I listen cerebrally, the way you observe the, the attorney leading the witness in court. Witnessing level three is where I get interested in, in a deeper way. I listen to the intonation and the energy. And listening level four is truly active listening, listening with presence. But listening level five is when we cultivate a field mm. in which we allow ourselves to both be transformed and we allow the, the co-active, conductive power that we facilitate between us space of meaning, a space of power, a space of transformative emergence to fashion us anew through the conversation. And you're describing that and how that process can catalyze change and shift in everybody involved. And this is where you're describing you feel at home. Mm -hmm. And a few questions about that. First, what are the earliest recollections that that you have, that you became present to that registration, for many would be a little bit intangible, perhaps mystical, perhaps metaphysical, I I don't know. How did you become aware that you can step into this space? And then we want to learn about how you developed that as a tool.
0: I think there are two different levels. I mean, the first, there's the awareness of group space. And I definitely got that from being a Girl Scout. So from a very young age, that's why I learned how to play the guitar, because I realized, oh my goodness, what an attractor factor. People gather together and there's just this beautiful, like the sense of sitting around the fire together, right? That's so deeply ingrained in our humanity, because that's what we've done for eons and eons and ever since we had fire. Thank you, Prometheus, or whatever story you believe of where fire came from. (laughs) You know, So we've always sat around the fire together, and as the young person, I really noticed the attraction and what happened to that, which is why I learned how to play the guitar. And so when people say, how long have you been a facilitator? I said, wow, if I think back to it, probably since about the age of 10. (laughs) I didn't think about it like that. But that was a training ground for how to work in groups and how to be in groups. Then there's the concept of liminal space, that moment when you can really sense the new is about to be born, or you've crossed over. It's like the medieval map that has that legend in it here'll be dragons. You've crossed over the edge of the known universe. And suddenly you're on that threshold, which is exhilarating and frightening all at the same time, right? Because we all know that the reason people didn't leave their villages and go over the mountains is because, well, two things. Number one, you might never come back. And number two, if you did come back, you would be changed. And so we have had some resistance to going over the edge of the known universe because we knew both those things would be true. We don't know if we'll ever come back, and we don't know if we'll fit in if we come back. But there's that moment liminal space, and you can feel it. It's when, okay, so here's how I explain it. I call it depthing the field. That's my own personal verb, depthing. <laughs> so when people are telling stories to each other, what happens is well, exactly what happens between trees. You know, no tree is an individual. They're all joined up by the mycelian sheath, the mushroom kingdom. And that way, they can transfer information and knowledge between them. So if trees are standing around in a group, the one at the edge that is suddenly receiving the insect attack is busy telling the other trees, get ready, get your chemicals out, put the gear on, mates, it's time to withstand the attack. So that's how they spread information and knowledge. And if you would ask me what human beings have as a mycelium sheath, I would say it's our stories. Mm. It is the secret currency of any organization. It's the currency of any nation. It is the secret economy of the world, and it drives everything else. So there's that moment when people suddenly are in that space. And storytelling, you would call that entrainment. Entrainment means you're on the train with somebody, you're in the story with them. And when scientists measure the brain capacity, they're seeing the brain light up the same places in the storyteller as the people who are listening. We are functionally in the same story together. Mm. That's the power of a great story. And how we define great story is interesting. I talk about Big S stories and little S stories, you know, everybody wants the biggest story. I survived the earthquake, but sometimes the little S story, how I was able to deal with my child who I was secretly suspicious what might be suicidal, that little S story, that's the story that could save your life. So Mm -hmm. all of them are valid, right? And when we get in entrainment, there's this, it's a, I've stood in rooms and realized, okay, we're at that moment now when suddenly it's like we sink down a meter or a yard into the earth and our roots begin to connect when we're sharing stories, because we suddenly can no longer see each other the same way. We've opened a doorway into each other and more is possible. And that relational field is what will help us do the tough work together that we need to do, wherever that is, whether it's on a project or in our racial conflict right at the moment, we need enough relational fields so that we lean in together rather than falling apart. And yes. I've been in lots of groups where they go, can't we get onto the task? Come on. You know, we have this need for speed, but we need to think about the pace of grace instead. How do we build enough relational field that when the turbulence comes, because it will, we can stick together. We can value each other's gifts. We can honor that we have differences and, and hold
1: those and, and not be afraid of each other. And by the, the verb, depthing, you mean that? You mean getting into the depth where... Yes our stories begin to not only connect, but rather transform yes. each other. So and how-
0: that for me is a liminal space. That's when a possibility comes. So there's a, that's a different thing than just, oh, I love being in this group together. That's when you're in a pregnant possibility.
1: Yeah. The other words I will use for that is when you are at the frontier of emergence. Yes. So how do you tell your story?
0: Oh, I, you know, I have things I say a lot and things that I wonder if are true. You know, this is the interesting thing about story, right? Because, and both my parents have died. My mother died last year in Easter and my dad in 2017. So that was some time for us three sisters to look through the old photos and stuff like that. I have a younger sister who has one of those photographic technicolor memories, you know. She will describe something to me and often I go like, was I there? (laughs) Because I don't. Remember it like that at all. So I've often wondered, you know, how much of memory is true? So what story am I telling? And it's a, been an interesting thing for me over time, working on other people's stories, to also work on my own. I remember distinctly at one point in time, I lived in New Zealand almost 30 years, and daily people would say to me, Where are you from? I detect an accent. And of course, I would say, Yeah, everybody has one. And then they would look a bit confused. <laughs> No, I don't have one you do. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, that irritated me enough. I, you know, I just like mm-hmm. oh. I, call, I used to call where are you from my graciousness question cuz when I was feeling gracious I would realize that's how people connect they try you know they're trying to place you in their map of the universe whatever they tr- but if I ever had that sense somebody's trying to prove themselves right, oh I knew you were from there. I'm right. Or you're an American and I think Americans are like this. That used to make me uh, you know, I would have a, a visceral reaction to that. And I was telling another storyteller about that. And she said, You know what? You need to tell a story about that. You are so irritated, you absolutely need to tell a story. And I ended up working with these three other storytellers, and we created this show, this production called Te Haringa, which is in Maori, the return home. And each of us told our particular stories and we wove them together. And they wove together at very interesting points. And that was both incredibly illuminating for me and very, very therapeutic to own my story in a different way. Where are you from? Of course, I have many ways I can answer that. You want the long version, the short version? You want the cosmic version or the business version? You're like, (laughs) where are you from? It's a great question. Yeah. So I tend to tell those pieces of myself.
1: I'd like the the short cosmic business version.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The short cosmic business version is I was the child of two teachers. So I learned about reading really early, and I think that was my first way of traveling. But when I was 16, my mother asked me this very potent and powerful question in my life. Do you want to meet Rob? <laughs> and Rob was a kid who would just come back from an exchange in Japan. So this was the 70s. In Indiana, nobody had heard of sushi. Nobody had heard of anything like Japan, and I found it so amazing. But it lit a fire in my heart that put me on the international travel road and I was an exchange student in Germany. I studied abroad in my junior year at Hamburg, in Hamburg University. I was part of an international student organization. So, you know that kind of set the way, and that's how I eventually got to New Zealand. So, by this point in my life, I've lived more than half my life in the southern hemisphere, and the other half in the northern, I've traveled all over, and I've lived in different places. So, that my think gives me a unique quality of being able to see systems in a way that most people can't because they're in them. When you're in the middle of the story, it can be as obvious as the obelisk in the marketplace, but you can't see it. And I got that term out of the the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, who really talks about the system that you're in is so obvious it's like an obelisk in the marketplace that most people can't see it. And what happens or I have a a colleague Paula Costello in Washington DC who says we're all in this dance party, but until you can get on the balcony, you can't see who's playing the tune. And unless you get on the balcony, you have no choice about whether you want to dance or not.
1: So how do you bring into that story, into that wave, the, the tool and the central media through which you work, which is stories? Where in that evolution do you find yourself in that space?
0: In my life story? Yeah. I went to a storytelling festival in 1992, which woke me up to stories. So I'd read a lot, but my father and his father both had been to the world wars. So they were not men who spoke a lot or told stories. Mm. So I often say I didn't grow up in the house of stories. I grew up in the house of secrets. So I didn't ever know about the power of story until I physically and tangibly saw it in a room. If you can imagine me sitting in a junior, like an elementary school and on a small chair in a classroom with somebody telling a story where I saw how powerful it was because I saw how people got affected by it. And my brain said to me, oh, my goodness, what happened? And then a split second after that, I wonder if I could do that. So that was the moment when I learned about story. So, that, so story was you know effectively on one side of my life. And about 1995, I became a facilitator. That was the other side of my life. And I ran into Patricia Aberdeen, who had been one of the co-authors of Megatrends with John Nesbitt in 1983, I don't remember any of the other trends they talked about then as forecasters, but except high-tech, high-touch, which to me totally speaks about the rise of personal computers and computing and the rise of storytelling. Both of mm-hmm. these things began to happen in the 70s, was the storytelling renaissance. They are intricately connected, and now you can see these two working together on the way that we share stories on various platforms in cyberspace. But that's been a long coming trend. But Patricia was giving a presentation at a conference I went to And she said one of her top trends at that time, that was about 96, was leader as storyteller. And she gave me the page out of her speech, which I still have in in my files somewhere. And I remember at that point in time waiting for these two interests in my life, facilitation, working with groups and story to begin to weave together. And they absolutely have. So the challenge we have right now is that challenge of story being seen as a method or a tool rather than intrinsically part of our humanity. Mm -hmm. and that means there's an edge about how do we decide to use it, and how do we become wise and awake to it. But where I got the idea of story activism was watching a short clip by the actor Cliff Curtis. Cliff is a a New Zealand Maori actor who's been in a lot of Hollywood films. He's usually playing the bad guy. Uh, I say to people, you would recognize him if you've seen The Last Airbender, and he was the head of the Fire Nation. So Cliff is is an excellent actor, but he was in this little clip saying, anybody, paraphrasing him, anybody who, who works with stories is an activist, because when you hear a story, it makes you want to do something. And I'm using the word activate as in what do we want to activist as in activate rather than be against something? What are we for? What are we trying to do?
1: Catch me up just a little deeper, mm-hmm. that point when these two impulses, storytelling and facilitating when they converge, what, what happens? What is the scenery? And how is that? then releasing you to the next evolution of your work?
0: I just really, so I noticed how stories impacted on people. They move us. Actually, metaphor does the same thing. Story and metaphor are cousins. One time I was in a plane and I met a guy who said, I, hello, I'm a professor of narrative and metaphor. And I thought, I've died and gone to heaven. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Unfortunately, our flight was very short. So I was like, bummer. Why wasn't I on a 12 hour flight with you? Uh, so I, I realized that those two things moved people incredibly. So when I began doing facilitation work around transformation organizations like transformative change, I remember very distinctly working with a energy company which had decided to unify all these different pieces of different companies that it had bought. And it already had the slogan and it had all that stuff, only the unification wasn't working. So they hired me to use Appreciative Inquiry. Appreciative Inquiry is a narrative method, although it doesn't call itself that, because it's based on finding and harvesting, pulling the gold out of the stories of lived experience, right? So it is a narrative practice. So I was using appreciative inquiry with this group, and I realized we needed to have working with this value the organization had called seamless. And I said to everybody, okay, for our next meeting, would you please bring something to our group meeting that portrays or reflects the idea of seamless to you? because I was trying to dig into what do we really mean by this? Because you can put lots of words on a piece of paper. What in the heck do they mean? Until they mean something, people aren't going to do anything about it. So I was listening to people as they were talking around the circle. One person said, see my wedding ring, you know, it there's no seam in it. So it's all going around. Another person said, see this zipper when I go up and down, like that's seamless. And people were beginning to talk. And I said, okay, so I get it. Uh, so what does it feel like now? And somebody said, they looked very thoughtful. And I said, you know, it's like we're all puzzle pieces and the pieces don't fit together. Oh, really? So what would it be like if it was seamless? Well, said the person, all the piece, the puzzle pieces would fit together. And I watched silence land in that circle and then everybody nodding. And then I went, ah, we've got it. The metaphor or the story has to come out of the group itself if it's going to be powerful. So we went around the country making present, these people did, making presentations about when we do this work together, we will all be puzzle pieces that fit together. And they made up big puzzle pieces and they put them together tangibly so people could see that. And suddenly there was no resistance to this. There was a nodding of the head and yes, that's what we want to do. Hmm. So the story begins to manifest already as we are inviting people into it. And for me, because I know my system is story-oriented, If I'm meeting people, I need to know the story of them before I can go further. I need to know the story I'm stepping into in an organizational context and who people are and what their story is in relation to where we're trying to go. And inside of a group, if I'm working with them, I'm usually framing things in the context of a story. If I'm online like we are now, then often I will, and I'm going to pick a piece off my desk. If you're listening to this on radio, you won't see this, but what I'm holding up right now is a wooden heart that has a dark side and a light side. They're two pieces of wood together. And this particular talking piece, I might frame it to the person I'm speaking about saying, you know, we're in a point in time right at this moment where there is some heartbrokenness. There's heart breaking open. There is sadness and grief, but also an incredible potential if we decide to walk into it. So I want to put this piece in the middle and I want to invite us to check in with this question. So I tend to story the objects I'm using so that people have a reference point, but that also focuses them on where we're going. So I tend to use story interwoven and stuff as well as using story practices.
1: So with this example you're offering there, what would be either an example, a recent example, or a way to appreciate the way story, the path stories can play in the work of transforming a crisis into an opportunity? What would be an example that you could share where... A story is the space where we transform the crisis into opportunity.
0: I can speak of one I've worked with a lot, actually. Some time ago, I think it was about 2010, a Danish colleague of mine started telling a story from a book that he had been asked to do the preface for. The book was called The World's Best Education System, and it was about how Danish education was formed. And Danish education came out of a particular crisis because on January the 7th, 1813, Denmark went bankrupt. It was on the wrong side of the Napoleon War. The Brits came and used their most update war technology, which was firebombing. Firebomb the capital, stole the Navy. Kaboom, Denmark was the size it is now. It used to be much bigger than that. But out of that crisis came universal education in 1814. The king was reported as saying, We might be poor, but we don't have to be stupid as well, Mm. (laughs) which I think is fantastic. But that was the first time that universal education for both boys and girls was made possible in a state structure. And 50 years later, Denmark experienced the Golden Age. That was the time of Søren Kierkegaard and Hans Christian Andersen and an explosion of new ideas and information. So when I heard about this story, I was like, my ears perked up because the moment I heard about that story was the time when it looked like a bunch of countries in Europe were going to go bankrupt, Greece and Spain and Italy, and everybody was shaking at that moment. And I thought, it's interesting. When I heard this guy, uh, Niels Christian Nielsen, speak about his book, he said, I learned something from a colleague of mine called Trojan mice. So you know what a Trojan horse is, Mm -hmm. right? A Trojan horse is pretty obvious. It's a kind of a big thing. But in the story of Denmark's education system, the first teachers were a bunch of young people who were all trained together in Copenhagen, and they were sent out to the villages, and the villages allocated a house for the school. And they also paid the teachers, so the teachers felt they were more beholden to the local people than they were the government, but they kept in touch with each other, and they helped to make step change. So they were the ones who were at the, the basis of the collective movement, in other words, they said to the farmers, look, if you put your stuff together, you could cut, go further than before. And Denmark was very, very wise in moving strategically to redo its economy in a way that eventually made it a powerhouse. So New's question is called the teachers Trojan mice. He said, these are people who can make step change because they stay connected with a, with a purpose of uplifting things. And then they go out, And they aren't, you know, they're just a single person, so they don't look very threatening, and they get to know people and they get to work with people. And they together make a big change. And Denmark, as a result, is how it looks today an amazing social system. They rode through this crisis in a very good way because they have the collective nature in their backbone. They know how to do stuff for and with each other. And this particular crisis has woken it up. So, that particular story, we spent a few years digging into. What actually makes transformation? What helps people to stay together for long enough for change to happen? What we found, one of the things we found out was when Denmark went bankrupt, nobody had enough money to do big parties and glittery entertainment. They talked to each other instead. And because... Right now,
1: right yeah. now, when people are locked in their homes because yes. of the epidemic, they have to talk to each other because they've already seen everything there is to see on Netflix.
0: Yes. But also, you know what's happening in today's ages unique and interesting constellations of people are coming together because they they can online. So I personally think there's probably some really unique collective wisdom that's arising in this moment simply because people have found themselves in different forums because they can. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else to do but talk to each other and try to make some new sense happen. So that particular story tells me a lot about change. And it says it also the core of that story is We are wasting a good crisis. Don't waste the crisis because the possibility for change can come out of it as long as you don't fall into fear and you keep talking to each other. And you say, what can we do together? What resources have we got? I've learned a lot out of that story. And it's still alive. So right at the moment, if you go to Copenhagen, there's a major exhibition in the Metropolitan Art Museum, which has one of its themes, the the bankruptcy of 1813, because a number of people kept working on this story, it is making so it's coming back to re-influence the history which had forgotten that it was there. And the same is true in any organization. If you look at founding stories, founding stories are incredibly potent, and they're still at work. The question is, are they generative or not? And which parts of them should we wake up? Which parts are time to die off? You know, some stories need to be need to stop being told. Some stories need to start being told, and some stories we need to keep telling because they're helpful.
1: So you spoke earlier about the liminal space. We are now in a liminal space. Yes. And part of the effort of this time is to fashion a story that will help us find ourselves, make meaning inside this liminal space. If you need it today, it may be different tomorrow or next week, but if you need it today to begin to fashion the archetypal story of this moment, where do you begin? How do you approach it?
0: I think one of the answers is start anywhere and follow the thread. That's what I learned in my life, first of all, in New Zealand. I don't have to know what's at the center of the spider web as long as I find one way in. Mm -hmm. Then I have to trust the web. So a few things are poking my mind at the moment. The first one is, is it time for the end of the hero's journey?
1: Is it time for the end of the hero's journey?
0: Yeah. So this monomyth has been around for quite some time, and especially North America has taken this to kind of the nth degree of the savior character who is a single individual. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the more we fall into fear, the more the strongman archetype looks appealing, which is why the fear lobby has kind of been going at it for uh, quite some time. But I was seeing an article recently that, and I didn't read all of it, because I didn't have the subscription to this particular service, but the person had been following up why female-led countries have had less coronavirus deaths than male-led countries. Yes. So, the, in the interesting times,
1: I believe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. So the interesting thing about the hero's journey is that's Joseph Campbell admitted that he mostly heard men's stories. He did yeah. not hear women's stories because typically archaeologists or anthropologists would not have been privy to the women's stories. So he went into fairy tales and folk tales to try to find the feminine. So the question is. So I've, you know, often seen the hero's journey and thought, it doesn't feel that way from my perspective. <laughs> and I know there are people who've written on the hero's journey and stuff like that. But the, the crucial point for me in that particular monomyth is that the hero doesn't get anywhere without support and without colleagues. And so how often, though, do we actually see a collective story happening instead of an individualistic story?
1: The other thing that's going on is... So you're proposing in that, that at the end of the hero story, there is some kind of a collective emergence story, that, that is the new story that's emerging, or am I misinterpreting? That, mis- that, our,
0: that our story might need to be a more collective story. Yeah. So first of all, we have the challenge of most of our storytelling is around individuals in the Western world. This is not an Indigenous perspective. Indigenous well, would be telling more collective stories.
1: That's right. So there are two layers in what you're saying. The first is that the hero story itself, hero journey story itself, is somewhat of a distorted aggrandizement Of the big persona, typically men that we love to focus on. But we fail to remember that even in their case, they were surrounded by many people that enabled them to become who they became. But you're saying within that, there is now even a bigger shift, which is, which we've been on for a while, which is that next chapter is what? How would you frame it? How would you tell? Is it a collective story? Is it
0: it. I think it is the dance of me and we
1: dance of me and we.
0: And depending on what culture you live on, you're somewhere on the spectrum between me and we. So my experience in Japan would indicate to me it's a very we culture. In fact, people suicide in Japan when they cannot express themselves. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the United States, which is a very me culture. And this current debate about are you wearing a mask or not is an indicative demonstration of the me culture. You are inhibiting my freedom if I have to wear a mask, but there's no account of we at all. In fact, our, and you can see that in our city structures, there's not uh, a center. In Europe, you would have central places where people can gather and that have still a heart and still a lot of life. And the U.S. had the donut effect where everybody went out to the suburbs and the center died. And that's been true in our family structure, too, as we send the youngest and the oldest away from each other. We have broken that circle, too. And we're seeing the results of that now in how people are with each other was in a conference some years ago where we were working on the UN agenda of the time. And I was tasked with facilitating the part of disengagement, disconnection and barriers to engagement. First of all, I thought, oh, the UN agenda is incredibly negatively phrased. Bugger. <laughs> and our sign fell off the wall and we couldn't get it. It would not stay back up. So we called it connection and engagement and put the sign back up because, you know, what am I working for here? And we heard stories from different people and we listened to, we did an appreciative inquiry about connection and engagement. In the end, we came up with a really beautiful statement, which is when me and we are positive and beautiful reflections of each other, then there will be connection and engagement. And the statement was longer than that. But you know, you can can make me standing up as if it's on the beach and we as if it's in the water. And these are reflections of each other. So when I asked the people in Japan, show me the kanji for community, because I love kanji because it is pictorial language. They showed it to me. I said, okay, so what does it mean? What are the components of it? And the person said to me, community means the place where I am most myself. Mm. And I stood there for a moment and I said, may it be so. If that were truly true. So it's not that people have too much ego that they go around and it's that they have too little ego. Their ego isn't strong enough if they can't accept other people for who they are and value who they are and bring them in. then in fact, the ego problem is the opposite way around they mostly think it is. Because if you're stable enough within yourself as a leader, then you should be inviting people who are very different than you who have different strengths who can help you see in different ways. And so our stories need to point us in that direction to who are we together? How can we stand together? I remember talking to a friend who was a 30-year meditator and also a neuroaffective psychologist. So she really knows about attachment and how things work in the brain. And I said to her, after one disaster I had seen on TV or, and heard a lot about it, I said, why is it that right after a disaster, not all of us, but most of us are the best of ourselves. We help each other. We focus on what's truly important. We value life. And then at some point in time, it seems to snap back to normal. Why is that? And she said, well, there's a couple things you have to remember. Number one, humans are mammals and we are herd mammals. So she said, you can see it on the plains of Africa. When there's a lot of grass, the herd spreads out. This is my territory. When there's a threat, they band together. They put the young and the vulnerable in the middle. They face the threat. She said, we are exactly the same. So she said, it's only from my perspective when we realize that the, the challenge is not another individual or person or group. That the ultimate challenge is unconsciousness itself. Mm. That is when things will begin to change. And I've kind of sat with that notion from her for a long time.
1: Yes. How do you approach the stewarding the art of hosting? What is your philosophy into that work?
0: Well, the art of hosting is all about participatory practice. It really the it's about hosting and harvesting conversations that matter. And the premise is all of us can do this, from very simple. I mean, the simplest part of any. Participatory practice is a good question and a talking piece. That's the simplest one. I was, I've was i been doing some art of hosting training online just recently. That's my learning edge. <laughs> Something that we normally <laughs> do face-to-face intensively for five days straight. you know. And I was saying to my group last night, a question is an intervention. That's already an intervention into the system. And if you have a good one, it should keep playing with your mind for quite some time. So there's the other tool. Stories, listening, questions are the key leadership tools for me. So... When we talk about stewarding, stewarding isn't, there's not a role description, there's not a certificate for it. It's something you feel called to do. Or as a colleague of mine often says, I cannot not do it. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as if this practice has seeped its way into my blood and bone, and it's how I show up. I'm wanting to know, how can we deeply listen to each other? What's our process for, what's our calling question? What is it we want to harvest out of our time together? What are the tangibles and the intangibles we want to come out of this time? How can we continue to make invitations to each other to show up? Who's also going to help host? How can we all be part of the hosting field? So I think of myself when I'm stewarding as the ground mm-hmm. that other people can practice their practice on. And my, so my intention is to always build capacity, We build capacity to build capacity. So it's like that. It's like what Robert Greenleaf said about servant leadership. If somebody leads in such a way that another person wants to become a servant leader too, then you know you've accomplished it. And the same for us. If I steward in such a way that another person wants to become a host, then I have fulfilled my role. If I've shown people it's not about the methods, it's about staying in practice. It's about who you're being. That's far more important than what you're doing. So I'm not part of what I would call the tool again camp. You know, I want another tool,
1: <laughs> what, <laughs> but rather, how do I keep my practice alive? When you say these words, stay in practice, you mean what?
0: How do I, well, the, the fourfold practice, which is the basis of the art of hosting says one of the first, and this is a whole on, So it, every practice in and goes further than that. For the first one is host yourself. What do you do to be present? People meditate, run, pet the dog, play with the kids play music, go swimming. What is it that you do to clear your mind so that you are present enough that you are not triggered by the stuff, your own material, so that you can actually be helpful and stay curious? That's a lifelong practice. Mm-hmm. And it's easier sometimes than others. But right now in the, in the conflict that we're in around identity and are we going to share the resources and how do we govern ourselves, the more we can host ourselves to stay present the better off we are. I have an African-American friend who says the thing that white people are most afraid of is falling apart. Mm. And the thing that people of color are most afraid of is stepping into their power. And both sides have to learn how to do those things. And, but you can only do that if you host yourself. Yes. Second part is be hosted. Like, Can you be a good participant? So for those of us who are used to being in charge, and I'm pointing the finger at you, all leaders out there, woo You're used to being in charge. So that means you're around conversations or you're on them, but you're not in them. And part of your role is actually to be in something and to encourage other people to speak and to deeply listen. And when it's helpful, bring something that you have. But otherwise, can you listen and say, hey, wait a minute, we haven't heard from you. You know, so you can host from the chair in being a good participant. And a lot of us who've been in charge a lot find it hard to be participants. (laughs) So then the third practice is host and harvest conversations that matter. So the question isn't not what did your boss tell you to do, but rather what question has your name on it that won't let you go? And this Danish story, the 1813 story, definitely had my name on it. And I found out about it. I didn't live in Denmark at the time. I don't speak Danish. I could hardly write down people's names. I didn't know any of the history But I had such a strong feeling that I wanted to be a stand for that story that I went after. I've never forgotten writing to every Danish person I knew at that moment. Will you help me? And there was this dead silence Mm. for about a month. And, you know, there's that time when you actually have to keep the flame alive inside of yourself as a caller. I've heard uh, stories of, of people who've called conversations about tough issues in their communities, went to the community center sat the chairs in a circle and sat there by themselves. And then they came back the following week and did the same. And it was, you know, a number of weeks running until anybody else showed up. But they had to have the stamina, the heart to keep calling the conversation. So it's this question, what is mine to do? Mm is really important right now. So I think it's not everybody shouldn't get involved in everything because you feel guilty or feel like you have to or somebody's shoving you. You're far better off to say what truly has my name on it and go in there with incredible heart and passion and stamina and stay the course and keep calling people in. So that's number three. Number four is called co-create, which is I think the sweet spot for humanity. You know, If I think of the times when people have been most in love with each other in business is when they're making something happen together that moment where people go wow you know like there's an aliveness in the room so that community of practice is the fourth practice in the art of hosting field and but it's a tough one too because when you're in a community of practice you have to be willing to be confronted with your shadow so i often say i love learning but not necessarily in the moment when it happens because it's like being in the rock polisher going hey you have a you have a bit and i know for me where I, my rock polisher is, is every time I've made an assumption rather than asking a question when I'm hosting, it's gotten me in trouble. Mm. You know, that's where host yourself. So this thing keeps going around like that. And then at the center of our practice, we have these two elements the master practice is sensei and steward. Sensei is, if you can imagine a yin yang in the middle of these four circles, then the the sensei is the fierce practitioner, the one that says, keep practicing. That's the leader of the martial arts dojo who keeps the students practicing and practicing until it becomes second nature. Until you can wield the sword cleanly, don't swing that sword around, mate. You know, Because there are times to have the sword out and go, no, and make the cut. But if you do that cleanly, you don't damage other people and yourself. You make clean boundaries. And then the other side is the steward. That's the the opening for the new, holding the space for practice and for trial and error and stuff like that. So you could call those the grandmother, grandfather energies right in the middle and between them is the pathway of practice.
1: Where in this uh, practice and exploration do you find that you must uh, confront the boundaries of your courage?
0: Oh, in every single one of them. If If you're true to the practice, it's in every single place. Where do I face my own shadow when I'm hosting myself? Where do I turn and say, yep, that belongs to me. Please come home. So you don't have to act out anymore. So as humans, we're, we're quite ready to put the shadow on somebody else. <laughs> it's them, you know, like we're looking yep. for a scapegoat. But it's time to own all the shadows and go, you know, wholeness is the only way, folks. Holing and wholeness is the only. Then in, in the Be Hosted, you know, my edge on there is that I have my inner critic I call the movie critic. And I visualize him sitting in an overstuffed armchair with a clipboard writing scene five minus two you know <laughs> he's got an incredible critical view on how things are hosted and with the belief i could do it better so can i lay that one to rest you know that's my edge there of can i be wholeheartedly there for anyone else what no is matter it, what they're doing
1: what is it you do to uh, as you say uh, enable that critic to uh, get a break get some rest what is it you actually do <laughs> You talk to that critic. You yeah. You oh, thank you for sharing.
0: Thank you for yeah. sharing.
1: Um, <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. Please have a coffee. <laughs> right.
0: But you know, if you name that one, in fact, he probably needs a name. I haven't given him a, a personal name, but you know, thanks, thanks, uh, Fred. You know, go have a coffee. If you name that one, if you narrative practitioners or narrative therapy practitioners would call that itifying. If you Put it outside of yourself. So the problem is never in the person. The problem is the problem. and The person is the person, right? So if I go, yeah. what is my relationship to the critic? Then suddenly I can see it in a different way. I can own it in a different way because it's yes. not that...
1: That is know. part of shadow work. You're seeing yes. it for what it is, not identifying it, but not identifying with it.
0: Yes, exactly. But it's also like time for all those pieces, all those exiled pieces to come home. They keep act- acting out. This is the problem.
1: In the host and of- harvest... And, yep. and part of bringing them home is metabolizing the energy inside yes. a constructive regenerative purpose where some of the material they bring home becomes the fertilizer for the next growth. Exactly.
0: Last year in June, I had a retreat for, for 12 days and I didn't go anywhere. It was a, I had a home a day, not a holiday. <laughs> it was some very, very deep inner work and it was incredibly freeing. And I went to an engagement in August after that, and I showed up there and I realized I didn't have any judgment. It was such a relief. Like I could see that in New Zealand speak, you'd say part of this was going pear shaped. In other words, the, the facilitation wasn't what it could have been. But since I made all of my suggestions from love and without any attachment to them, all of them were accepted and gratefully accepted because there was no energy of, I can do this better or you're failing or anything else like that. And I have to tell you, it was an incredible relief. Mm. Judgment has returned every so often. I'm like, oh, there you are again. (laughs) But I'd be far more wanting to work with discernment rather than judgment.
1: And part of the developmental um, work is what do you do then with this extraordinary energy that was released? Because there is a whole chunk of energy that used to be Processed and was part of the, the critic or the, the judge or all those things. And once they are being released, there is energy. And if the energy cannot be used or directed yeah. in, inside a constructive new premise, then the habitual pattern of those uh, formations will recruit the energy back. So that's why there has to be some kind of a teleology of self in, in terms yeah. of the, in the hosting of self. The, there is some ongoing journey that's unfolding, whether we have a story for it or whether we are discovering the story day by day.
0: I've listened a lot to Marissa Peer, who is a hypnotherapist and quite well-known, and she's got a lot on YouTube. And she said that the challenge, of course, is the brain tends to go back to what is familiar, even if that's not comfortable. So your job is to make the familiar unfamiliar and the unfamiliar familiar so that you naturally move in the way you want to move, not in the way you're habituated to move. A core premise,
1: in a similar way, this is a core premise of the Feldenkrais work because when you release yes. the system from the suboptimal or the inefficient organization of self, which is similar in principle to organization of other people because you are in terms of the skeletal and the muscular an organization. So, yes. And that is organized in the motor cortex in the brain. And so part of the, the job of the, the Feldenkrais facilitate or practitioner is to introduce another option for the brain to recognize and discover that there is a, a more efficient way to move and then choose that. And you're saying in a similar way, it is true in terms of the narratives and the stories that we tell yes. and how we behaviorally engage with the world. Yeah.
0: And so when our stories get stuck, and especially if we're not allowed to tell them, I remember being on a call with a group of first nation leaders out of British Columbia And being asked to talk about story, I felt like, wow, you're know, you asking me to talk about story to people who have story as their basis. Oh my goodness, I felt, what can I do here? But it turned into a really beautiful listening session. And I heard one woman with real pain saying, I tried to share my story and I was told by the person listening to me that it wasn't true. So the pain of that, the suppression of story ends up making it a poison inside of the system. Stories were meant to move. And You know, the most important part of the word emotion is motion. (laughs) They were meant to be an indicator to us of something, not to get stuck. So the rage and the anger that we see on the streets these days actually is covering up a big mass of grief. Mm -hmm. And all of that needs to be able to move so that the story can change. But here's an interesting thing for leaders to recognize. I have a colleague, Phil Cass, who used to be the head of four medical associations here in Columbus, Ohio. He's somebody that brought art of hosting into those medical associations. They used to meet in circle for 13 years as he was heading these organizations. The, the leaders in the organization would meet. They called it the kitchen cabinet. And all of the uh, administrative assistants would meet in circle too, and they passed the leadership of that circle. And he said, I've realized over doing this work for that long of a time why most leaders don't do it. It's because when you work like this, when you truly see people, you will fall in love with them. Hmm. And you will realize that when they go, when things change, it's going to break your heart. Hmm. And that's why most leaders don't go there, because they're worried about the broken heart. Yeah. But I've realized over time, when the heart breaks, it's bigger.
1: Yes. If you were to lose all that you know, and keep just two ideas or two practices or two capabilities, what would you keep? I would keep my ability to
0: tune in and receive words. So I, I receive stories. I used to have a prayer when I was going out long ago of, please help me tell the story that needs to be told right now. And I thought that I meant that would me making it up on the spot. But actually what it has turned out to be is, Every time I'm somewhere, I begin, I, you know, it's like I put the story in my basket that I'm carrying, and the story eventually will come out somewhere else where it is needed. And I had to learn how to trust myself enough that that would be there. And so secretly, the other job title I'd really love to have is ecstatic poet. (laughs) Ecstatic (laughs) poet. Yes. I I love Rumi, and I love those uh, feasts and those kind of... So being able to receive those kind of things is a gift and a joy. And I think as you get older, you begin realizing you need less and less stuff. You need more and more wisdom and patience. So I guess I would ask that those two things remain, wisdom and patience.
1: And the ecstatic part is that the receiving is in the giving, and the giving is hidden within the receiving?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's all circular.
1: Thank you, Mary Alice. This uh, is a special and rich exploration so as we bring this to landing what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures
0: it is to remember that our stories can lift us up or they can hold us down we can we are responsible for that and we live in a story and that means we can change it
1: thank you